As always, the great Carsey Blanton. Check her out at carseyblanton.com. You can get a copy of that tune. It's called Smoke Alarm uh, at her site. You can get download all her other music. She works on a tip system. Um, very cool. So carseyblanton.com. Sometimes I forget to mention her. I don't want to bore you, people who listen to this all the time. I don't want to bore you by saying the same things over and over again. So uh I'll just say it now, and I'll probably forget for another couple of months. So, CarseyBlanton.com. You can hear the full song at the end of every podcast. All right. Rock and roll. Uh, this is Anna Kasparian. Uh, met with her after doing The Point. Uh, she's on The Young Turks. If you haven't checked them out, give them a shot. They're on the web. Uh, just Google The Point or The Young Turks, and you'll find them. Uh, you'll see me on a bunch of episodes. Anytime they're talking about sex, they have me in if I happen to be in L.A. And uh, Anna's the, the host. She's great. She's smart. She's cool. She's cute. You know, whatever you want, she's got it. She's she's very uh, interesting woman. And uh, our, our conversation got pretty deep, actually. I figured as a media person, she'd be very guarded and, uh, you know, sort of reticent. But she opened up. It was it was really nice. So I appreciate that, Anna, if you hear this. And uh, it's good to get a, get a chance to know her a little bit and see her uh, backstage, as it were. All right. Uh, we are about to leave for our migration north. We're in L.A., but we're leaving within a few hours, headed north. So I'm just uh, going to throw this up before I'm out of Wi-Fi range. And we'll be cruising up the five. Anybody who's ever driven up or down Route 5 in California has no doubt experienced the incredibly disgusting um, cow shit zone that you go through in a town called Coalinga. Uh, It's a huge cattle ranch that's right along the highway. And you just sort of like come into this massive cloud of cow shit stench. It's unbelievable. And and then funnily enough, there's like this big steak restaurant, this famous ranch steak restaurant just up the street. So if you're not completely grossed out by the cow shit smell, stop in for a steak. Um, but um, what I was going to tell you, a little bit of um, trivia that my buddy Malcolm told me. Malcolm, who, by the way, is a producer on The Point, the aforementioned Point. He's full of interesting information. One of the things he told me was this town, Koalinga, which I assumed was some Indian name, uh, actually came from the fact that there was a, a train line that ran through there back in pioneer days. And, uh, you know, the trains were all run on coal. They were steam trains. And they would have coaling stations along the train route. And uh, this was the first coaling station on as the train came out from the coast, I guess. And so it was calling A, calling A, Koalinga. Funny how those things happen. Very, uh, I'm always fascinated by that, how 
something transforms into something else over time. And because none of us live long enough to see the transition, it gets lost. You know, there's a, there's a name for that in biology. I forget what it's called, but you know, it's like, you know, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, uh, where the air was full of soot and the streams were full of, you know, shit because of all the, the steel mills and the coal mining and all the stuff going on there. And, you know, I was running around in the woods, catching frogs and whatever. And to me, that's the template of normal. That's, that's what a normal forest looked like, you know. But if you went back there now, you'd find no frogs. The frogs are all gone. But the kids playing in the forest now don't notice the missing frogs because they've never seen them. So to them, that's the template of normal. And so we go through life this way. We go through history. We go through time this way. All of us thinking that the world that we live in, the conditions that surround us, that are familiar to us, are normal. Where, in fact, we may be in the midst of extreme abnormality. Um, it's one of the interesting effects of getting older that you start to get a taste for that. You start to notice how, wow... You know, people who are younger, they think this shit's normal. And I'm old enough to know it's fucking crazy what's going on here. You know, whether we're talking about weather or politics or, or war, or peace, whatever it is, um, you get a bit of perspective, which is um, one of the few positive aspects of, of getting older, probably. There are more. Yeah, to be honest, there are others, but not as many as you might suspect. You young whippersnappers. Anyway, this podcast is brought to you by nobody uh, except the ever-present, ever-wonderful Sure Design T-shirts. SureDesignT-shirts.com. Check them out. You know, I can't do what Duncan does. Duncan, Duncan is like, listening to Duncan talk about Sure Design T-shirts is like, you know, at, hanging out with Miles Davis, he picks up the trumpet and just some crazy, amazing shit comes out of his mouth. Happens every time. He does it week after week. I don't know how he does it, but I can't do it. So all I'm going to say is they're great shirts. Whether you buy them from, from me uh, at the website, chrisryanphd.com, where you can get this crazy, beautiful Sex of Dawn t-shirts or the uh, funky Ralph Steadman, Hunter S. Thompson-esque uh, tangentially speaking t-shirts um, or you buy them directly from shoredesigntshirts.com in Thailand uh, if you do it put in sex at dawn for your code and you'll get 10% off the total order uh, I just ordered a whole shitload of stuff for Casilda she went through and picked dresses and all sorts of things that she she likes so we've got an order in um, and I use my own discount code yes I did um, but use that discount code. It'll get you 10% off, and it'll also uh, let Bennett know that uh, this podcast is bringing him some business, which uh, I would really be happy to do because he's been a sponsor since the beginning. I'm not doing any other sponsors this week. We're just going to go right to it. If you want to make a donation, chrisryanphd.com. There's a donation button. Uh, if you ever shop on Amazon, especially if you're going to buy something big, you're going to buy a stationary bike or, you know, some recording equipment or a computer or whatever at Amazon. If you go through my Amazon link, click on the bonobo balls, chrisryanphd.com, go to the podcast thing and you can, uh, some of your money will go to us. doesn't cost you anything. So that's really a cool way to support the podcast. Thank you. All of you who have written to me, I'm not going to go through a big reading. This week, I just want to say 
to Will Arthur, I hope your penis is still tingly. Um, that's a good thing, as long as it doesn't hurt when you pee. And, oh, man, I got a beautiful letter yesterday from someone in Ireland. I don't have it right in front of me, so I'll talk about it in a future podcast. But a guy sat down and actually wrote a letter on paper, put it in the mail with a $20 bill. I haven't gotten a $20 bill in the mail probably since my grandmother died, and she was giving me fives. I never. I don't think I ever got a 20 from her either. Uh, but it was a long time ago in her defense when five bucks still mattered and what the hell I was 15. Um, but anyway, really, really sweet letter. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and you're out there, thank you very much for sending that. I won't use your name because it was very private, but you know who you are. And I appreciate very much the time you took and, and, and the, what you shared with me. So, uh, with no further ado, Let's jump into this episode, and I will pack the car and hit the road. I hope things are going well for you. Uh, oh, and by the way, if you haven't heard the last episode I did with Duncan and Joe, uh, which went up last week, that's pretty epic. Uh, it's part of our uh, round robin thing. Uh, I'm, you can find all three of them. That's the, that was the third. The first aired on Joe's podcast, the second's on Duncan's, and the third's on mine. If you go to chrisryanphd.com, you'll see a tab for Try Podcast. That's just a place. It's a placeholder. I'm not sure what we're going to do long term. But that's a place where I'm archiving links to each of the episodes. So if you missed the first or the second, you can find them there. And in the future, you can always go back there and, and check it out. Uh, that is... By far, my biggest, uh, you know, my record downloads, and it's only been a week. It's already fifty, sixty thousand downloads, and in uh, climbing fast. So check that out if you uh, if you if you missed it. It's a pretty good one, I gotta say. Um, we had a lot of fun, and I guess that comes through in it. So Anna Kasparian, The Young Turks, The Point. Check her out. Hope you enjoy it. Bye. All right. We are in the studios, the luxurious new studios of the Young Turks. I'm with Anna Kasparian, who I will refer to as Anna, unless I'm really thinking about it. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. Um, I dated someone for seven years, and his mom would call me Anna, even though I corrected her yeah. a few times and said it's Anna. But it's, I mean, I don't mind it. Was she Spanish? Bother. Hispanic? Yeah, yeah. Mexican. Yeah. yeah. See, the, there's no Anna in Spanish. It's it's Anna, especially yeah. with one N. You spell it with one N. I I do. I mean, that's the correct way to pronounce it. But for some reason, I just like to go by Anna. Where were you raised? I was raised in Los Angeles, California, born and raised. Um, I wish I could say that I, wa I spent some time in a different state or a different country, but I haven't. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, when you grow up in, like, Wisconsin or, I don't yeah. know, Mississippi or Oklahoma, like, you consider going to, you know, like a, a, a different place. But when you've been living in LA for your entire life. I mean, where, where else do you go? Do you go to New York? Mm. I don't want to go to New York. So yeah. I've been here my entire life. Yeah. You can get spoiled by the weather here really easily. Def it was 77 degrees today. Yeah. That's insane. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and it's mid January. We should, we should mm -hmm. know. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, my relationship with L.A. is complicated. Okay, tell me about yeah. it. I mean, you 
spent a lot of time in Barcelona, right? Well, yeah, as an adult. I got to Barcelona in 89 the first time, uh, and I was 27, Mm -hmm. I guess. I was born in 62, so I was 27. Um, But I grew up on the East Coast, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and New York primarily. And um, my favorite aunt moved to Topanga Canyon, which Mm -hmm. is right off Malibu, for people who don't know L.A., uh, in the 70s. And so we used to come out and visit her. And then, uh, well, (laughs) I shouldn't have said my favorite aunt, because now if my other aunts are listening to (laughs) this, I'm going to have trouble. Oh, so she's your favorite, huh? (laughs) Exactly. No, she's my godmother, not that I'm religious. But she she was the youngest of of the the siblings in my mother's family. Mm -hmm. So she was like a teenager when I was a little kid and she was a hippie you know when I was growing up she had a Volkswagen bug with flowers on it and uh-huh, you know what I mean uh-huh. she was just as you know like closer to me than some of the older ones um, anyway so we used to come on and visit her and uh, I always hated LA hated it and, I, and it sort of like for a lot of people I think it, it represented like things about American society that I would never agree with you right. know the falsity and the yes the you know all the just the, the the car culture and the you know it's commercialism and all these things and um and then after sex at dawn came out everything changed well you started making the big bucks and you're like all right now i can hang with the big dogs <laughs> well, up in here the yeah, angelinos up in here yeah, yeah. <laughs> up in this. Uh, it's true, actually. You know, it's funny you're joking. But LA sucks if you're broke, right? I'm not well, saying that you were broke, but I was. I was yeah. completely broke. I'm still relatively broke. So, I mean, it's not about the bucks. What it's about is access. Definitely. And I remember. I, I remember the day I moved to LA, which was only for the winter. Last winter, Casilda and I decided to spend the winter in LA. Why? Clichés of clichés because I was talking to some producers, maybe a TV show, you know, my agent, all this bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. Which embarrasses me to hear myself saying. Um, But (laughs) the first day I arrived in L.A., Mm -hmm. I get a text inviting me to Moby's birthday party. Living here my entire life, I haven't gotten an invite to Moby's birthday party, and I like Moby's music. I didn't even know who Moby was. That's hilarious. You know, I'd heard that one song, uh, Strange, no, Natural Ways or Strange Ways. Oh, Extreme Ways, right? Yeah, that was... the Born Identity, uh, I think it was a soundtrack. Oh, wait, no, no, I'm mixing it up. Strange Ways was, you're right, Born yeah. Identity or maybe a Extreme Bond Ways. film or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of the other one where he samples like a, an old slave song. Yeah. yeah. Nobody knows. I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lordy. Yeah. yeah. The troubles, troubles I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're the worst. <laughs> We're the worst. We're totally like torturing him right no now. Wonder, no wonder you were never invited to movies <laughs> and I'll never be invited back. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's the only song I'd ever heard. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, I was invited by Neil Strauss, who wrote The Game. Mm-hmm. All right? And he, I knew him because he was interviewing me for a book he was working on about relationships. And he had read Sex at Dawn and yada, yada, yada. So he had heard I was coming to L.A. And he texted me, hey, I'm going to Moby's. You want to come to Moby's? So the day I arrive in L.A., I'm at Moby's house up in the Hollywood Hills at a birthday party. Very nice. Which I thought was going to be, you know, hookers and coke, right? No hookers and coke? No hookers, no coke. Not even alcohol. Oh, Mo- that Moby, it turns terrible. out, is a vegan, 
You She's know. super progressive from what I hear. But yeah. wait, no alcohol? I mean, what kind of party is that? No, there was a, a little warm beer. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think I even brought alcohol because somebody had told me Moby didn't drink or, he, you know, I don't know what his, his story is. Uh, but no, it was like, it was a nice party, really nice people. What did you guys do? I just hung out by the pool and chatted and, you know, played with people's kids and. Oh, wow. That sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like an adult party. It was. Like in the worst that's possible the way. That's the thing. It's like, I get invited to this amazing Hollywood party yeah. and it's like no Hollywood party I've ever mm-hmm. anticipated. Um, but anyway, the, the point of the story, aside from just like, you know, trying to sound cool by saying I went to Moby's birthday party is that I met some people there. And what I noticed is that nobody asked me what I did for a living. Mm -hmm. And normally in LA, everybody asks you what you do for a living within two seconds of meeting you. Same in New York, same in DC. It's a very American thing. It's something I'm very conscious of because in Spain where, as I said, I've lived for 20 some years. Uh, it's it's really crass to ask someone what they do for a living. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just it's like asking how much money they make. It's just like oh, you American, what, why are you doing that? You know, it's really low class. Yeah. Um, so it's something I've become sensitive to from living in Spain. When someone asks me, it's like oh, it's jarring, you know. Uh, and nobody asked. And, and at one point, I was talking to somebody, and I was I, I wanted to know what he did for a living, but I didn't dare mm-hmm. ask. And so I said, you know, it's funny. This party, nobody asks what you do for a living here. It's interesting. It's sort of not American. And I told him about Spain and all that. And what he said was, look, there are two L.A.'s. Yes. There's the L.A. everyone knows, which is the L.A. of the strivers, of the people trying to make it, trying to find some leverage, find some access, find some contact that's going to help them get their screenplay into the hands of so-and-so, right? And then there's the L.A. of the people who've made it. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, I don't mean by made it that we're all rich or that, you know, everybody's, you know, done doing what they're doing. But what it means is they've got their access. They've got their contacts. They got their agent. They're in the game. Yeah. And once you're in that LA, it's a whole different set of rules and not to sound elitist, but it's cooler Yeah. because people aren't fighting you don't get that feeling that people are trying to climb on top of you to get ahead yeah that that level of competition diminishes a little bit um or is diminished a little bit and i think that that that's definitely true so i i love la i can't imagine living anywhere else i will live somewhere else if it means that i will further my career so Mm. the only place that i can imagine that happening is new york and i can't imagine myself happy there but if I had to move I would do it Um, but I'm in like this weird place in my life where you know I'm in my like mid to late 20s I'm 27 and I feel like I I haven't made it per se but I'm in a really great place in my career I'm doing something I love I host my own show The Point Um, I co-host The Young Turks largest online news show you know I got a book book offer Uh, I mean all this stuff is going on I'm teaching a class at Cal State Northridge a journalism class so I have all these like little projects and I feel really fulfilled in my career so I don't feel like I'm constantly fighting for access and that's a great feeling but I'm in the age group where a lot of people still are fighting for that access Mm. a lot of guys that are in my age group that I would be dating are fighting Fighting for access. So right. there's like a certain level of insecurity there. Sure. And that makes me really uncomfortable. And it kind of, 
makes my social life a little more difficult. But at the same time, you know, people are on their journeys. And as someone who feels like I have it together, the only thing that I can do is help my friends out as much as possible. So they're not in that awkward position where they have to ask everyone what they're doing and they're trying to network and, you know, (laughs) get to where they want to go. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's really, you know, to the extent that you or I are successful, the joy the greatest joy of it is that it allows you to help people out sometimes definitely definitely yeah uh and and as i'm sure happened with you a lot of people help me out um you know just by you know looking at the the manuscript when i was working on sex at dawn and giving me honest feedback i mean that's so valuable especially yeah. for a first book you know so what's what's the book deal that you mentioned so um i should note that like nothing is set in stone i'm actually still working on proposals but the only reason why i'm even considering writing a book is because a publisher came to me right. and said hey i'm a huge fan you should write a book <laughs> so the, already i, I feel like That's i'm sweet. i'm you know in yeah. uh but the book is basically going to talk about the emergence of new media the uh, the young mm. turks role in new media it's going to be um you know critical of both new media and traditional media so i, I just said media 25 times in one sentence but <laughs> that's all right. That's the right word. Yeah. You might as well use it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I feel like I obviously have a lot of experience in because when I first started my career, I started off in traditional media and then I made the transition to the Young Turks. And at the time in 07, that was a really risky move because TYT uh, was not financially stable. Right. Uh, of course, CBS Radio, which is where I was working, was very stable. And I had to make a decision between those two companies. Mm. And I'm really happy that I made the really risky decision. And I can talk about the trials and tribulations. So, you know, right now I'm trying to perfect the proposal. I don't know what that was like for you, but I feel like it's like an insanely long process. It's like I want to give yeah. my my agent, my literary agent, my proposal, and I want her to just tell me once, okay, this is what you need to change. I want to change it, and I want to go forward. But, right. you know, the revisions, like endless revisions. So oh, She doesn't just tell you what to change? No, no, she does. She oh. does. But then you change everything, and then you give it to them, and oh, then they come back more. to you yeah. with more. So Yeah, I mean, the only silver lining to all that is that a, a very – clearly considered well-written proposal saves you a lot of work down the road of when you're course because you know it's the skeleton of the book yeah. you know exactly yeah. what you're going to write about so yeah. definitely yeah and you'll probably lift paragraphs from it too i, I, yeah. I you know because you refine it so much it's almost like a short story or a poem or something you go over it so many times it yeah. you know it's got some good catchy language in it i'm sure yeah i feel like the proposal is a short book i think it's yeah. like 30 pages right now i can't yeah. even imagine anyone reading through that entire thing but it's kind of amazing <laughs> they yeah. will yeah over and over again yep. yeah. yeah 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 right publishing's a an arduous process, but it sounds like you've got the, the, you know, the easy, the direct route. You've got that red phone on the desk that calls directly to Moscow. I, I, I don't know if I could say that, but I mean, I just, I have already set my uh, goal, and that goal is to finish this book. Mm. And I'm not one of those people that can live with myself if I start something and I don't finish it. Ah. So I'm really, really hoping that I get this done. I told my uh, agent this needs to be written by the end of the year. And she's like, you need to slow down. <laughs> like you just have to, but I, I don't, I don't believe in procrastinating. I don't believe in taking too long with a project. If I want to get it done, I'm going to get it done. Yeah. So you're a real type A, huh? I'm a total type A personality, yeah. how, which is also very difficult. How much <laughs> coffee do you drink in a day? 
I have now increased my coffee consumption to about three cups. A oh, day. Well, that's not bad. That's not bad. Okay, mm. good. I was going to say I thought that was horrible, <laughs> but okay. Well, it depends how how it makes you feel. If you're feeling all right, you know, three three cups definitely isn't like in the danger zone. Okay, good. If um, you're not getting palpitations or anything like that. Not getting palpitations, but if I don't drink coffee for one day, I will get the most headaches. It's like debilitating. I can't. Yeah, you know focus. why that why that happens. Hmm. Um, the coffee's a diuretic. It makes your all your blood vessels uh, open, right? Oh. Um, and it, uh, particularly the um, arteries in your brain, are open. And so, what happens? So, so it sort of like increases the pressure inside the the artery. But there's a countervailing pressure to hold because those arteries have to be very tightly controlled to right. control the blood flow into your brain. Um, so there's there are like sphincter muscles around holding them holding the the pressure in equilibrium. So when you stop drinking coffee, the muscles tighten these uh, arteries, and uh, it actually restricts the blood vlo- flow into your brain a little bit. That is fascinating. Right. And right. that makes me realize that I should never wean myself off coffee. Just keep drinking it. <laughs> Just, Just keep, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, or any caffeine. I mean, a Coke will, will yeah. take away the headache. But it only lasts for a day, 72 hours at the most, I think. A no, I've gone two weeks without drinking coffee. The headaches will not subside. Oh, really? So then finally, I oh, just got... Oh, that's something else. Really? Yeah. I just got desperate, and I'm like, I'm going to drink a cup of coffee you know when you're sick you're not supposed to consume any caffeine because you know you'll continue being sick um or it'll slow down the process of getting better and i i can't do it i have to drink at least one cup of coffee a day right and i can't imagine getting pregnant like what am i going to do when i get pregnant or if i get pregnant (laughs) if that ever happens you know i can't stop drinking coffee that would be torture is that what told to women not to drink coffee you're not supposed to consume caffeine yeah really yeah, that's I wonder one of the if rules. there's any medical evidence that, that that backs that up, or if it's just the sort of anti-pleasure American medical establishment. Possibly, you know, there was this one professor that I had at, in college who was pregnant while she was teaching the course I was taking, and she said, you know, I enjoy a glass of wine after work, yeah, and it's not a big deal. Americans yeah. need to calm down, yeah. and and some of the students were like outraged that she exactly. had said that, yeah. um, but it's true. I mean, obviously, if you drink moderately, you're not. You're not going to harm the baby. Yeah. I mean, and also, you're not supposed to eat sushi when you're pregnant, right? Well, what happens in Japan? Do they stop eating sushi? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hate sushi, so... I, Who hates sushi? That's not normal. Oh, God. I, and there are a lot of things that aren't normal about me, Anna. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, <laughs> And that's, that's merely the scratching the surface. No, I, I don't like sushi because for two summers, I worked in the salmon uh, industry in Alaska. Oh. I see. So the first summer I gutted fish. That's right. I've heard about that. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's on my little bio sheet around it here is. somewhere, right? <laughs> uh, and the second summer I worked on a tender, which is uh, the boat that sort of goes out and takes groceries to the fishing boats mm-hmm. and then offloads all their catch into the, the hold of this bigger boat with a big vacuum thing that sucks up all the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take the fish back so so the fishing boats don't have to come in and out to the beach, I mean, to the dock all the time. Um, and anyway, one of my jobs on the tender was when we were offloading the fish in this conveyor belt, uh, when the, the, the level of fish in the hold was only like four or five feet deep, mm-hmm. they didn't there wasn't enough pressure to push them into this conveyor belt. So I had as the, you know, the low man on the 
totem pole, I had to drop down in there in my rain gear. Oh, my gosh. Literally with dead salmon up to my chest. Oh, my gosh. And sort of push them, you know, put my arms out and push them into this corner where this conveyor, these buckets and this conveyor belt were. And there was, like, giant balls of salmon mucus dropping oh down my the back God. of my that neck. Oh, my God. That sounds and, terrible. Oh, it was, it was hellish. How, why? But hilariously hellish. Why did you do that for work? How did that happen? Nine bucks an hour, baby. Uh huh. <laughs> so you just kind of took what you could get. And that was a great job. You liked it. Oh, that was a great job. compared you to you like salmon juice all over your body. Well, what I liked was uh, adventure mm-hmm. and getting paid a lot. Well, what, what to me was a lot of money because I worked on that boat for probably three or four weeks and i probably got four or five thousand dollars oh wow right and i was Not living bad. free because i was living on the boat and all that and i was cruising around uh, prince william sound i was seeing orcas playing off the bow i was seeing grizzly bears on the beach i was you know i was young and strong and happy in alaska you know and they paid wow. me for it it was amazing so that was great and if if that meant deal with some salmon mucus down my back well what the hell it's a good story i don't you know it ruined sushi for me. Right. Well, <laughs> That's the only lasting negative effect, I guess. But, yeah, sushi's overpriced. Anyway. Well, sushi is overpriced, but it's one of my great pleasures. Like, uh, I, I love a good sushi dinner. I don't mind spending... If I'm going to go out for good sushi, I don't mind spending a lot of money on it. Food, I will not skimp on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I actually have a question for you. So, you had a super adventurous life. Lived in Barcelona, gutted fish, wrote about sex. So... <laughs> Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was the highlights. Wow. Um, yeah. So when did you settle down? Because you are married. Well, married doesn't mean settle down, oh, by the way. Okay. Uh, my wife is every bit as adventurous as I am. Mm-hmm. She, and in many ways, her life before we met um, was a lot more impressive than mine. She is, she is from Mozambique, and... Um, her family had some property, had a chain of stores and a taxi business and, you know, sort of an affluent um, Indian family in Mozambique, which is in southeastern Africa, for those of you who don't know. Um, I would be one of those people that well, had that, no idea. You know, we, we met a woman, actually. This is a... I don't know if this story's funny or sad, but we met a woman at a Denny's in Oregon. We were driving up to Vancouver and... Um, Cassie started speaking with her, and the woman asked where she was from because my wife, if you haven't seen her, is uh, sort of exotic looking. It's not mm-hmm. clear where she's from, you know. And uh, she said, Mozambique. And the woman said, Oh, where's that? And Cassie said, Oh, it's in southeastern Africa. And the woman thought for a few seconds, and then she said, So is everyone there African American? Oh my God! It's so embarrassing, so embarrassing. But but it's it's also sort of endearing, you know. She was trying to say the right thing. She was trying you know, to. She didn't want yeah. to offend anyone. She was trying to get the right terminology. No, but, but when you really think about it, it's kind of it. I don't blame Americans for being confused about that because for a long time, referring to someone as black was offensive, and now I feel like referring to all black people as African American is. 
offensive because they're not all African. Yeah. You know, they could be from, um, you know, you have some people from Cuba that have very, very dark skin. Sure. Um, and obviously they're Cuban. They're not, they're not black. They're not considered black per se. Or maybe well, they, maybe they are But they're as black as, as Kobe Bryant. You right. Know? I right. mean, they're every bit as African in terms of genetics as right. a black American. Yeah. It's a weird thing. I signed up for California care recently, uh-huh. you know, this, this whole Obamacare situation. And, uh, and it was it was very strange because in the the you know the, the racial thing you know check a box what right, you are right uh, it, under Asian there were like fifteen subcategories you know South Pacific Islander Vietnamese Chinese you mm-hmm. know Thai Cambodian whatever and under white there was white mm-hmm. now how is a Swede not as different from a Greek mm-hmm. as a Cambodian is from a Vietnamese I mean I'm considered know? white and I'm Armenian so. Yeah, I mean, that's and I'm definitely... Irish. I mean, you know, that's not white. We're we're basically in the same category according to American standards, yeah. which is really fascinating. Armenia. Now, Armenians were in a part. Wait, is is Armenia? Where mm-hmm. where the hell's Armenia? I know it's around Turkey and that yeah, area Armenia Greece. is right next to Turkey. In fact, a huge chunk of Turkey used to be Armenia. That's what I was going to yeah, say. And is... there was the Armenian genocide, which yes. is a big deal that the Turks refused to talk about. They refused and... to acknowledge it, right? The yeah. Turkish government refuses to acknowledge it, so that's a really big deal. Um, and and you're... yeah, <laughs> and you're... I know I'm in a really uncomfortable <laughs> spot because I work on a show called The, the Young, Young Turks. Turks. But yeah. anyone who watches the program knows that it has nothing to do with Turks <laughs> course, or Armenians and. You know, I, I would say that one of the most influential people in my in my life uh, is Jenk, and yeah. Jenk is Turkish. He gave me so many great opportunities, and I'm so grateful for that. But um, Armenia is located right next to Turkey. It's it, in, continent-wise, it appears to be in Asia, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but you know, it's it's kind of on the border. Yeah. You know, so that's that's basically where it's located, yeah. and it's surrounded by its enemies. <laughs> Tough spot. Yeah. Tough spot. Yeah. 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 Oh, anyway, I, I was talking about Cassie's life before. So she, uh, there was a civil war mm-hmm. similar to, you know, the Armenian situation, I guess, with not with a genocide, but a very nasty civil war. Yeah. And uh, at 13, she was shipped off to Portugal because the rebels took over the country mm-hmm. and they said, you've got 24 hours to leave if you want to leave. Wow. And you could take 20 kilos. It was known as the 2420 declaration. Mm-hmm. Her parents put her on a plane to Portugal at 13. So she was in Portugal with distant relatives who she'd never met before from 13 through medical school. Then she went back to Mozambique with a medical degree and became a communist and decided to support the the rebels and help rebuild the nation and all this. And she took a job working as the only doctor in this big rural area where she drove in a pickup truck from village to village treating everything, doing amputations, delivering babies, you know, everything you can think of that a doctor could do, she's done. I I just imagined you running for office one day and how the Republicans would tear you and your wife apart. She was a dirty commie card carrying yeah she, she had a card she went around <laughs> helping amputees how dare like, you. yeah, and, yes. and it would work it would be a successful smear job it's well, amazing maybe but see here's the thing i mean i I've, not that i would ever run for office nobody right. would have me but if i did the first thing i would do is have a press conference where i said listen mm-hmm. i've used every drug i could find have you 
pretty much. Interesting. Uh, I've had all sorts of bizarre sexual experiences. And, you know, my wife was a communist and blah, blah, blah. And just lay it all out there and say, okay, you know, now. Now what? You know? Yeah. Let's talk about real things, you know, yeah. instead of you guys digging around in my garbage. Yeah. With that said, let's talk about real things. What's the most bizarre sexual encounter you've had? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have that See, press conference. This is the problem. Hey, I'm not running for office. You forgot that part. There was a little part at the beginning there. But this is the problem with interviewing an interviewer. I know. I know. Oh, now I'm terrible. interviewing you. Sorry about this that. Happened. I interviewed. Do you know who Neil Strauss is? He sounds familiar. He wrote the game. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's written a lot of books, but yeah. he's known for the game. He also wrote uh, How to Make Love Like a Porn Star. Yes. Jenna Jameson's yes. book. And oh, why? And he's the guy who invited me to Moby's party, right? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I interviewed him. He was one of the first people I interviewed actually for this podcast. And within like two minutes, he was he had me talking about my relationship with my mother. It's like, oh, how the hell did wow. that happen? Wow. You know? Well, we're having a conversation. You know, you ask me something, yeah. I ask you something. All right. Well, I, I could not tell you what the most bizarre one was because it would take me a long time to figure out what we mean by bizarre and remember them all. But I'll tell you one thing that came up recently. I was talking with a friend about this. Um, probably half a dozen times. Uh, a woman has encouraged me to have sex with her daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. While she watches? No, no, no. Not a kinky thing, um, depending on your sense of kink. But just mm -hmm. like a one woman offered me, uh, well, not money, but she offered me the use of her cabin and her truck if I would go to South Carolina and hook up with her daughter. What? Was her daughter, like, in love with you or something? No, That's her daughter so had never met me. Wow. <laughs> but her daughter was in a relationship that the mother didn't like. Okay. With a married guy who also happened to be the local sheriff. Ugh. Which is, you know, that was a deal breaker right there. Um, so that that's an interesting thing. I've also been, I hope. I hope my mother doesn't listen to this. Um, but I've also I had uh, quite a bit of men invite me to have sex with their wives. Okay. While they watch, I'm sure. No, no. 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 Just like, hey, you know, my wife's into you and you seem, you know, mm -hmm. are, if you're into her, it's cool with me. Yeah. The thing is when, and this happened long before I wrote this book, um, that when people sense that you're not judgmental, about these things, yep. all sorts of interesting things come to light. Definitely. I think a lot of people have certain desires that they want to carry out, but yeah. they feel like they can't out of fear of judgment. Right. So once they hear someone who's open-minded, I mean, I love the fact that I can have a frank conversation with you about sex and desires and, and urges. Should I, should I turn and, this off? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah, we'll have that conversation off the, the air. conversation, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, and, and I know that you wouldn't be judgmental about that. Right. There's something really empowering about being able to talk to someone about what you genuinely want. I think a lot of people are in, yeah. you know, monogamous relationships and they're having terrible sex because they can't communicate with their partner about what they genuinely want out of fear of judgment. So, that's you know, what? I, I got an email today, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, just a few hours ago, uh, from a guy who, I guess he had read my blog on psychology today and he wrote to me and <clears throat> He said, um, look, I'm sorry to bother you, uh, but I'm very concerned about my wife and our marriage. And, um, 
you know, my wife's a very sweet, wonderful woman, and we love each other, and you know, everything's great. But here's the thing: she's got these fantasies mm-hmm. about um, being with other men, mm-hmm. and like that's like the most normal thing in the right, world. And maybe like a group of men, and she's very submissive in bed, and she has these. They like, oh, what if they tie me down, and what if this and that, and. And I hate myself because it turns me on. And I don't know what to do. Should I see a doctor? Because oh my I, God. I, I'm sick and, and she's sick. And, and I don't know how to help her because it actually turns me on. And sometimes we talk about it. And, and then I feel so terrible and I don't know what to do. Wait, let me get this straight. So they're both, they both have desires. The same desire, the same essentially. De- the They've same got converging desi- fantasy. And he sees this as a problem. I mean, that yeah. is the, the consequence of the puritanical society that we live in, right? If you like anything that's considered taboo by societal expectations or societal norms then you need to feel ashamed about that you need to seek help and it's absolutely ridiculous look what you do behind closed doors as an adult and as long as it's consensual it's your business you should enjoy it that's freaking awesome i know that's what i said to him i said dude you are so lucky like a you share your fantasies with each other which is really cool b your fantasies align it works perfectly i said no it i would not guess that you would want to put this into action because it doesn't sound like you know that's something you want to do but that's up to you but you know just having this secret shared secret with your wife that's beautiful that's intimacy you know and you guys get off on it good for you enjoy it dude you know so many people are in marriages where they don't get off right the thought of one another doing whatever Or maybe they do yeah you know independently but they never talk about it so they never know that all those years they were thinking the same thing you know yeah yeah there's a funny rodney dangerfield line where he says uh yeah last time i tried to have sex with my wife nothing was happening and and uh so i said to her what's the matter you can't think of anyone either (laughs) <laughs> that is hilarious oh my gosh yeah. i don't know i don't know yeah but anyway i yeah. you know i was just i just did an interview with jenk before uh you know we, this and and we were talking about jealousy and promiscuity and all and you know he was like okay i get it like men yeah men are promiscuous but not women you know oh, women are promiscuous <laughs> like dude <laughs> women have just lied about it for a really exactly, long time because they've exactly. been forced to lie about well, it that's that's what i said it's like there's you know the 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 penalty for being an openly promiscuous woman until you know five ten years ago even in this society was at least extreme shame and and banishment and still you get all slut shaming in high schools and all that stuff but in lots of the world it's death yeah, you're stoned to death. So for having control of your own sexuality. You know? So I recently read something online. I forget who said this. It was some public figure, but he was making the argument that it's unfair to compare a woman's sexual desire to a man's sexual desire. Th- that men think about the most disgusting sexual activity imaginable and for women to say that their their thoughts are similar is ridiculous that women can't even imagine some of the stuff that men think of yeah. what do you think about that because i i genuinely don't know what goes through the mind of a man uh when it comes to you know their sexual desires maybe maybe it is much more extreme than something that i think of um well you know it's hard to know uh, without, you know, like, what do you, how do you judge that? You look at porn, you look at, like, yeah. you know, what are the more popular porn sites and all the crazy crap that's out there and, you know, whatever, and fetishes. And, you know, it's true that 
uh, almost all fetishists are men. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so now that doesn't mean women don't think of kinky things or you know uh, get complicated, but it does mean that generally, if you need to think of this thing in order to get off, you're a man, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, women's um, erotic plasticity is the technical term is much greater than men's generally. So the, the, the theory is that, uh, somewhere there's a, a developmental window for men and for, for most mammals, male mammals, where they get imprinted with some erotic, um, uh, event or experience and that's it for mm-hmm. th- that window closes and that's it for the rest of their lives. So, you know, it may be it's an eight-year-old boy, you know, under the kitchen table, and he gets a hard on, and he looks up, and his mother's friend is there, and she's got red high-heeled shoes, and like boom, red high-heeled shoes. That's it. So wow. the rest of his life, he's got that you know connection. Whereas with women, it's not like that. Women can change constantly through their lives, mm-hmm. and the the experimental example I often use for that is the scientist in Scotland who took. Uh, what was it? He had a herd of goats and a herd of sheep. And one year he took all the newborn sheep and put them with the goats and all the newborn goats and put them with the sheep. So they were raised by the other species. Mm-hmm. And then when they, they reached sexual maturity, they started having sex with the species they lived with, right? And then he switched them back to their original, their their actual biological species. And the females were like, oh, okay, whatever. And they started having sex with these animals. The males were like, no, no. Fascinating. Yeah. So the male sheep would only have sex with female goats. Wow. And the, the male goats would only have sex with a female sheep, not with their own species, because they had this imprinting. So anyway. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I think some men are probably, you know, the extremes of male sexual perversion are probably further out mm. than you know, it's like the the sine curve, right? The bell curve. Yes. You know, the women are the high in the middle bell curve, and the men might have higher extremes uh, in some cases. But I think most most of the extreme weird stuff mm-hmm. comes about comes about because of repression, right? Because right. the natural expression of sexual desire is repressed, and men go through um, a period, especially in, in Western, in this society, you know, from whenever they become erotic beings at 13, 14, whatever it is, until they have an active sex life, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, in the best cases might be five years, in the worst cases could be forever, of extreme sexual frustration, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a 15-year-old boy is a a pussy seeking missile. It's like, that's all he's thinking about. Right. And that's not really an option for most 15 year old boys or 14 or whatever. So there's this extreme frustration that builds up. And I think that in a lot of boys, this curdles into misogyny or some kinky, weird, you know, thing that they've got to work out for the rest of their lives. So what do we do? Do we encourage them to carry out their, you know, their needs when they're 15? And Well, I, I think, you know, one, the first step is acknowledge that this is the case, mm-hmm. right? Not pretend that 15-year-olds are not sexual beings. They mm-hmm. are. Sorry, parents. Sorry, teachers, administrators. But, you know, they are. Uh, you know, acknowledge the fact that in school districts that have the 
you know, the most repression of uh, female and male adolescent sexual behavior, those are the areas that have the highest teen pregnancy rates, the highest STD rates, you know, the highest uh, every bad effect. Um, So, you know, it would be miraculous for this country to grow up around sex. But if it did, it would it would look like Holland, where I I wrote a a blog about this um, in Holland. The typical parental behavior is when your daughter, 15 years old, has a boyfriend, you have him over for dinner, you meet him. If he's a nice kid, you invite him to spend the night. Yeah. And you make sure your daughter's got condoms. You make sure the two of them know what's going on, what's acceptable, what isn't. And then it's their lives. Because the fact is they're going to do it anyway. They are. They are. It's true. But it's so – I mean – I am very, very progressive, but just like the thought of that, I don't even have children. So I can't imagine what I would be like if I do have children one day. Just the thought of telling my daughter, hey, you know what? I like your boyfriend. You're 15. He's 15. Yeah, he can spend the night. Here's some condoms. Do your thing. I know that that's the more responsible way of handling it. And I say responsible because then it's done on your terms and it's safer and they're educated on what the consequences are, how Mm -hmm. they can stay safe. Um, But at the same time, I mean... American culture is so ingrained in in people that it yeah. just it kind of gives you like a knee jerk reaction. Well, you hear that. but I mean, you know, very, until very recently, uh, a lot of people were saying, you know, oh, d- two men married? Are you kidding me? No, oh, ah, true. You know, pull my hair out, and now it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, definitely. So culture can change quite quickly, and and uh, I hope it will in that respect. There's a there's a great expression in Dutch which I can't pronounce, but it translates to. Uh, you must tolerate something in order to control it. Mm-hmm. I've right? heard that before, yeah. Yeah. That's true. I think it's so wise. Whether you're talking about drugs, you're talking about crime, you're talking about, you know, whatever it is, teen sex, you know. If you don't acknowledge it exists, you know, or you declare a war on it, mm-hmm. as Americans do, you're never going to solve the problem. In fact, you ingrain the problem. I sort of feel that way about infidelity and yeah. and, and cheating because... To expect someone to remain monogamous for their entire lives with one person is unreasonable, right? But, like, how do you handle the jealousy thing, right? So, like, now I'm I'm at a point where I'm dating and there have been people that I've really liked and they don't want to commit, right? So then I've kind of gotten to a point where I have my guard up and I just assume no one's going to commit and so I don't let anyone in. Like yeah. no one it's like a bulletproof, you know, wall. Like no one can do anything to get to that point where they can make me feel emotional about them. Right. And it's it's a it's a way of protecting myself. Like I know that this guy is going to sleep with a bunch of women and since I know it and I'm going to tolerate it, I'm not going to get my emotions involved and but I think that that also hinders any type of real intimacy doesn't it yeah yeah certainly in your case it sucks (laughs) (laughs) no and it's a it's a tough thing because it's true that that you know sex is one of the fastest ways to establish intimacy with someone you know Mm -hmm. not necessarily not always but generally it especially when there's a woman involved Yes. So I think that for women, it's very easy to get attached if you're sleeping with someone. Uh, Would you say that the same is true of men, maybe to a lesser degree? Much lesser. Mm -hmm. You know, I was talking with Dan Savage about this 
uh, a few weeks ago for this podcast, actually, and we were talking about some of the complications that arise in the workplace between men and women and, you know, the, the whole harassment, is this harassment, not harassment question. And he said, well, you know, this is one of many things that make me glad I'm gay. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to sleep with a man, you say, you want to sleep together or you want to fuck is what he mm-hmm. said. He's like, you meet a guy in a bar and you say, hey. You're cool. You want to fuck? And he says, yes, which means you go and fuck. Or he says, no, which means you don't. Right. And that's it. And and the other thing is that it's very common among gay men that you might have a relationship with someone for a while. And then the relationship ends for one reason or another. But you remain great friends. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, your circles of friends don't get disrupted. And it's not, you know, you take this these friends and I take those friends and this whole huge drama that heterosexual couples go through. Uh, I think I think heterosexuals have a lot to learn from gay men uh, in terms of how to deal with intimacy in some ways. But, but some things you yeah. can't control right. because when you're right. when you have sex with someone else and let's say you orgasm, uh the dopamine spikes in your brain, right? And that that leads to attachment. Does that only happen with women? I mean, when you talk about the biological consequences of having sex, yeah. do women experience something completely different from when what men experience? I think so. I I mean, we argue in sex at dawn uh strongly in favor of a more egalitarian vision of male and female sexuality. Not to say that they're the same, Mm -hmm. but that women are every bit as sexual as men are, are capable of, I mean, you know, one really turned on woman can like, leave 10 guys exhausted mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and it's it doesn't really work the other way you know it's like uh so uh you know we're very um supportive or or adamant in in declaring that women have great sexual capacity great uh greater probably than men uh capacity for pleasure and all these things but that doesn't mean it's the same yeah and i i do think that you know, there is this very essential uh, difference in that women can get pregnant and, you know, throughout evolutionary time, there's a very intense vulnerability that's associated with female sexuality, um, at least intercourse, that isn't with, with male sexuality, right? You can walk away. The man's investment, minimal investment is, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of minutes. A woman's minimal, minimal investment could be nine months of pregnancy and, you know, breastfeeding. Child rearing and, yeah, and all it's that. It's like a yeah. huge thing. So I do think, yeah, I, I, I think that's part of our nature as, as beings. But I, having said that, it, you know, since the book Sex at Dawn came out, uh, the emails that I've received have been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I get a lot of emails from men saying, yeah, this all sounds great, but, you know, no woman would ever go for this. I get a lot of emails, at least as many from women, saying this all sounds great, but no man would ever go for this. Interesting. Right. So both parties are interested in, in a more open, right. egalitarian relationship. Right. So do you practice what you preach? We don't talk about it publicly. I just I just went through this yeah. with Jane. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Our uh, our stock answer is our relationship is informed by our research. Okay, all right. <laughs> I think that that actually says a lot. So well, okay. Take it for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, but and also keep in mind that Sexaton isn't an advocacy book. 
right? I, I my stock line in you know like at TED and public presentations and stuff is um, that. You know, monogamy doesn't come naturally to our species, sexual monogamy, just like vegetarianism doesn't come naturally to our species. But that's not an indictment of either one of those to say that it doesn't come naturally to our species, right? Vegetarianism can be more ethical and healthy and economical and, you know, superior in many ways. But just because you've decided to be a vegetarian doesn't mean that suddenly bacon doesn't smell good anymore. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to say about monogamy like you can choose to be monogamous but do it with an understanding that it's going to be challenging of course and with some compassion for yourself and for your partner if there are slip-ups along the way you're going to be much better off as you were saying earlier you know with this dutch thing you must tolerate it to control it couples who i mean i was sitting in this hotel in sydney a couple of years ago, I, was, I did a talk at the Sydney Opera House for this thing called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Great. Love, I love yeah, that. Yeah, that sounds great, actually. It was, great. <laughs> yeah. it was really fun. There's some great people there. But anyway, so I was sitting in this, in this lobby waiting for, to, I was going to do an interview for a local paper or something, and uh, there was this couple across the lobby and i was sort of checking them out because they they looked really uptight you know obviously married and they were sitting there waiting for something and this super hot woman walked through the the lobby and of course i saw her and then i saw the husband Mm -hmm. checking her out but pretend not to Uh uh-huh right and i saw the woman pretending not to notice that her husband was checking you know and it was this shit storm of denial yeah and then i thought about how cassie and i deal with things like that like if i'm reading a book and a hot woman walks through the lobby cassie will say oh don't miss this yeah you know yeah like whoa nice oh yeah she has great hair oh ah, yeah. nice this or we we can enjoy another woman or another man or whatever together yeah and to me if i were with a woman who got pissed off because i noticed a beautiful woman that to me would be the same as she got pissed off because i noticed a sunset or a rainbow or you know a puppy what the fuck beauty is beauty don't tell me i can't look at i i don't agree with people that can't appreciate the beauty of another person but i think the fear is that it will escalate into something more where emotions get involved, right? So yeah. how many times have we done stories, for instance, on politicians that get involved in some sort of affair and then they actually fall in love with their mistress? Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff I think scares me more than anything. So uh, to be clear about w- my fears, I'm not really that concerned with in the future when I have a husband. I'm not that concerned with him having meaningless sex. If, it, right. if he has a slip up and that's what happens then you know what? I can live with that. But if it's like a co-worker or something that he sees on a daily basis and there's a potential for emotions to get involved, that's different. He's on a business trip. You know, uh, he feels like the sex life is monotonous or something and we haven't worked through our issues and he has a slip up it happens right it, he's yeah. human and i and i'm smart enough to know that monogamy is more of a societal expectation than anything else but how do you prevent the emotions from getting involved because that definitely does happen well you know i i think this kind of discussion really to me lines up very well with discussions of american foreign policy believe Mm -hmm. it or not okay okay um because the assumption is that something is dangerous coming from outside and so we have to stop it from happening Mm -hmm. as opposed to um embracing it (laughs) well as opposed to strengthening the inside so that when it comes it's no big deal Mm. 
I like that idea. And it's the yeah. same thing with medicine, right? Like, yeah. are we going to remove all the pathogens from our environment as we've been doing with antibacterial soap and clean everything and don't let the kids outside and all that? Or are we going to strengthen our immune response by allowing the kids to play in the dirt? You know, the hygiene yes. hypothesis, yes. right? You know, that the reason kids have asthma now is that they don't play in the dirt. So they don't get exposed to pathogens. They don't develop um, responses, immune responses. And so we're, in the end, we're weaker. Yes. I think it's the same thing. You know, look at what's happened to this country since 9-11, right? Is this country stronger or weaker? Fuck, it's weaker. Mm-hmm. Look at how much money we've spent, lives that have been lost, goodwill that's been squandered around the world. So what if this country had said, shit, you know what? People are going to freak out people are going to attack people are going to do what they're going to do but the reason they do it is because of vast inequalities because we've been supporting dictators around the Mm -hmm. world because we've been trampling on people's rights and dignity for a long time what if we take this money and we spend it addressing those concerns Mm -hmm. and take care of people take care of our own country and okay they're still going to come and attack occasionally but we can deal with that we can deal with it because we're strong as a country that's that's a really interesting analogy Uh, i was speaking to a co-worker of mine and you know, he gives me a lot of advice, um, and and he was telling me, you know, if you're in a situation where you're seeing someone and you know that there's no commitment there yet and there are other people involved and you're feeling a little insecure, just keep telling yourself, right? Like, oh, yeah, you can go around fucking who you want, but I know I fuck you better, right? And, like, having that yeah. kind of – and I know I, I immediately went to, like, the raunchiest sex aspect of it. But, but the, same could be say, the same could be said about relationships. Same could be said about foreign policy. You're yeah. absolutely right. Just make sure that you are the best person you can be in that relationship, right. that you're doing what you can to make it work. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Then it wasn't meant to be. And if he wants right. to stray and get emotionally involved with someone else, then that's on him, and, right? Yeah, and, and I think there's also a, a, a level of humility in these things yeah. that people are going to live the life they want to live, that That's they true. need to live. That's true. And so there's this assumption that, you know, oh, if, if he has sex with someone else, he, he might leave me. Well, you know what? He might leave you anyway. Yep. And in fact, he might be more likely to leave you if you're looking over his shoulder, reading his emails and creating an atmosphere where he feels he can't be real around you or yeah. she, you know, yeah. whatever. It works both ways. And so my feeling with relationships is I, you know, that old line, uh, I wouldn't want to belong to a club that would have me as a member, mm-hmm. you know, Woody Allen or Groucho Marx or somebody. For me, it, with relationships, it's the opposite. I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with a person who didn't really want to be in a relationship with right. me. Right. And that can change over time. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I think there's a. This is going to sound real like Deepak Chopra bullshit here, but I feel like love is about wanting the The person person you love to to have the best life they can have. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. So if that means not with me, then that's what it means. And I'm not going to change that reality by trying to control their behavior or control who they meet. I want... Casilda or anyone that I care about to meet as many interesting people as possible. And if she or anyone finds some greater love or something that that doesn't fit with me, then that's what it is. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think we really forestall anything by denying it and fighting against it. 
And so, you know, I think that in a, in a relationship, the most important thing is that the two of you feel um, your truest self when you're with the other one, the other yeah. person, right? And if you've got that with someone, then, you know, you make your own deals. But my feeling is if you find someone and you've got that, Sex, who cares about sex yeah. is, and this is another thing that the gay men can teach us, I think, that sex isn't always sacred. Sometimes sex is just fun. Mm -hmm. To me, sex is like music, right? It can be a, you know, Bach in a cathedral in Bonn, and it's fucking, you know, mind blowing, and it's the closest thing to the ethereal heaven that we'll ever have. Or it can be the Rolling Stones in Philadelphia in a Coliseum, yeah. you know? It's both. It's music, and it's great, and it's cool, but it doesn't always have to be sacred. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just fun and friendly and a good time and, you know, no no problem. Anyway, I've been, I'm talking too much. You're, no, we're supposed to no, talk about you. I, this is, there's something very therapeutic of, about what you're talking about because I think that a lot of times people look for the wrong elements in a relationship, but I think that understanding and that genuine... Um, the genuine feeling of, of of wanting the other person to be happy and experience yeah. a fulfilled life is is true love and that's a difficult thing to find because that yeah. means that you have to experience a certain level of selflessness to to do that because look the element of jealousy is real it's there regardless of how logical and rational you are of course the jealousy is there and i i don't really know how you deal with it once you're confronted with it well, the way you deal with it, I think, is that you recognize that it is an expression of your insecurity, mm -hmm. right? And, and so you look at where that light is shining, right? Why is it that I'm feeling this? Why is it that when she's with that guy, I get angry or scared or, you know, what is it about that guy or what is it about me? What is it that, you know, I'm afraid he's got one thing with guys, men like put way as a woman. I hope you'll back me up on this. Men are way too fixated on their dicks. Uh huh. Right. A lot of guys are afraid like, wait, if she fucks that guy and his dick is bigger than mine, I'll lose her. Is that really what goes through a guy's mind? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always felt like that guys, was yeah. a little bit of a myth, but okay. No, look on the porn sites. Every fucking porn site has, you know, you know, here, you know, pay this money and your <laughs> dick will get bigger, right? Like buy these <laughs> pills, buy this pump, that, you know, uh -huh. it's all about dick uh -huh. enlargement, right? Interesting. That's not how women think. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I know a lot of women and, you know, who share their secrets with me and I don't know any woman who has, you know, left a guy she really loved who had a normal dick for a guy yeah, she a didn't love who had a big one. In fact, sometimes it's the opposite, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I don't want to get into dicks too much here. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is a nice, uh, you know, cherry on top. If you find a nice guy and you really like him and he just happens to You ever have. read the Kama Sutra? Um, I've looked at pictures, but I haven't, no, I haven't <laughs> well, read The original it. didn't have pictures, but, uh, the Kama Sutra does this whole, a really good discussion of, of penis size because we always talk about how big dicks are, but we don't talk about how big vaginas are. Yeah. No one ever really discusses that. Right. Yeah. So in the Kama Sutra is great. They, there are three categories of penis size uh -huh. and three categories of vagina size. Oh, tell me about the three different types of vagina. You know, it's it's the yeah. small, the medium, and oh, the large. Oh, I see, I see. And, and okay. they, they use animals. I don't remember the hair, the, the you know, the you and the, the, I don't know, I don't remember. And the same thing for the, the man, the males. There's yeah. the, you know, I don't remember what, what the animals are. But um, basically it's small, medium, large. And the point they make there is like, okay, you know, 
What's important here is correspondence. So the large size penis with the small vagina is not good. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, it's painful. There's no pelvic uh, connection to the clitoris, which is, you know, face to face, which is a, a big issue. There are all these disadvantages. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, the point is that that in the Kama Sutra, it's about fitting properly. Mm-hmm. And it's not that, you know, bigger is always better, which is a very American way of look you know all you can eat and you know yeah. all that bullshit yeah anyway what the hell were we talking about uh, we started we by talking about armenia or something and then all of a sudden it just kind of oh, yeah, we were talking about real true love and somehow that got us into i know i know animals but, yeah. and having sex yeah anyway yeah. so so my feeling with with um jealousy and all that stuff is to that the key to all these things i got an email talking about emails from people i got an email yesterday i think it was from this guy who said i get a lot of emails asking for advice and i don't like to give advice you know so i hope this doesn't encourage more people to ask me for advice because my feeling is if you're asking me for advice there's your answer yeah right you're asking me yeah you're not asking you, you know, i think that priest. they want i mean there's a little confirmation bias there right yeah. <laughs> so, you know what you're getting <laughs> yes but anyway this guy was like he was having issues with uh, a woman who was trying to decide basically there were like is she going to take a job and move to the same town as him or is she going to stay in this town or is she going to go on a trip and and, and he mm-hmm. said in the end of describing all these decisions that she had to make he said i don't know what to do it's like, dude, you, there's nothing for you to do, right? It's her decision. It's her. Yeah. And all you can do is support her in her decision and show her, if you're really into this woman, show her that you're the kind of guy who is capable of loving her so much that if she wants to go travel with her friends, you'd rather she do that than not do it in order to be with you. Yeah. That's love. I knew this woman who had a dog. This woman had a job. She worked all the time. And she was lonely. She was in her 20s. She had a demanding job. Beautiful, smart, sexy woman. And having trouble with men because she had no time. She was working all the time. So she had this dog in this tiny little apartment. Mm -hmm. And the dog was home alone all day long, yapping, driving the neighbors crazy. Uh And she had like this weird mat for the dog to shit on. Oh, God. Uh Uh-huh. That sounds terrible. And I said to her, like, why do you have this dog? And she said, because I love it. And, you know, it, it's love. I have, and I always think about that. Like, wait a minute. You love it or you love the feeling of it loving you? Right. Because the life you're giving this dog sucks, so, right? Yeah, that's not very you know, demonstrative of real love. So it yeah. feels like love because yeah. the dog's really happy when you get home and, Oh, and you, you know, you sleep together and you nuzzle each other and all that. But how many of our relationships are like that? I know we call it love, but really it's just, I get what I need from you. Oh, Chris Ryan, you're making me think about some stuff, man. Uh-oh. This is getting really deep. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's getting really deep. I don't know. I'm in a weird place in my life right now yeah. where where these are the kinds of questions that I ask myself every single day. And I'm conflicted about the yeah. way I feel and everything. And um, I'm also conflicted about what I genuinely want to do right now because I have this great career going and I love it. And I want to travel and meet people and do new things. And I don't want to be restricted in any way. And a lot of relationships do restrict you. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, no, 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 now is not the right time to settle down. And eventually I do want to meet someone that I want to spend the rest of my life with. But it's not easy to find someone that 
demonstrates his love the way that you're describing, you know, that, that allows his partner to travel and focus on her career and do what's right for her. And I want to do the same for, for whoever it is that I end up with. Um, but I think it's a lot easier than you think. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I've been dating nonstop for like six months and it's terrible. Yeah, but I, I don't know if you studied Buddhism at all. Maybe or, I should. Is that is that the answer? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one of the, the pre uh, precepts of Buddhism is that by by ceasing to seek something, you find it. Yeah. Right. And everyone says that. Well, I mean, I, I think it's true, and I I think that. You know, I, it's hard. I know it's hard when you're working and you know you're you're you have a very demanding career and all that. But I do think that I guess what I'm trying to say is I think there are more men like that mm-hmm. than you might suspect. I'm not saying they're easy to find, right? Necessarily, right. right? But I do think that there are a lot of people and more people all the time who are recognizing that you don't need to control someone to be in a relationship with mm-hmm. them. You know, like you use the word allow that allows me, right? Yeah. When I hear someone say like, oh, like if I'm out with friends and they're like, Oh, you're married. Your, your wife lets you go out. Uh, like, dude, yeah. Really? Like lets me, you know, th- that's not even an issue. You know, that's not even like the way of we're adults. Let's me, you know, is that my mother, my parole officer? I know. I know. About? It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. A lot of relationships are like that, though, yeah. and and I don't want to fall into one of them. So yeah, yeah. well, you know, I read, uh, or I didn't even read it. I, there was a poet who came to speak at a class I was in in college. I was this was like 1983, I guess, mm-hmm. and she was a friend of the professor, and she was dying. She had uh, terminal cancer, and he invited her to come in and read some of her poems to us. I don't remember her name or anything except one poem she read. The first lines were, leap out into the air to begin with, and you'll find wings you never knew. I always remember that, you know, in the years traveling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's there's a leap of faith when it comes to things like this, where when you come to a point where you're ready for that, then someone appears to you. Mm-hmm. who's also ready and until you're ready it's impossible to imagine and which gets us back to mothers you know asking me to have sex with their daughters it's like you know i say that to people and they're like dude come on no there's no way a woman mm-hmm. is going to invite you to you know but there are lots of women like that but they if they recognize like oh you can hear this without judging me you know, it's like women have asked me to impregnate them. Wow. I remember the, fir- the first one was in New York. I was living there in the mid-80s. Uh, it's like 86, 87. This, this is a strange story. Um, I met this woman. Her name was Elizabeth. And she was sexy. I met her in some work-related thing. I was working in real estate at the time, believe it or not. And I met her at this thing, and there was some chemistry, and we had dinner together, right? Mm-hmm. And... It was going really well, and then at some point she said, listen, I need to, like, I, I need to tell you um, I would like to be pregnant, mm-hmm. and um, the reason is that my boyfriend and I were going, or maybe husband, I don't remember if they were married, uh, were planning to have a child, 
Uh, but then he was diagnosed with um, leukemia, mm. and he's been having chemo, mm-hmm. and he's sterile for the rest of his life. But we yeah. still want to have a baby. And I don't want to mislead you. I don't want you to think, you know, this is something else. Um, I like you a lot. I'm attracted to you, da, da, da. But that's really what this is about. And, you know, I think it was probably when I asked her to meet again. And then she gave me this whole thing. And she said, you know, if you're interested, like, I'd love to have you over for dinner and meet my husband. And, you know. And so I did. I, I went. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't impregnate her, but I met her husband. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that is so interesting. Yeah. I, I will say, I mean, I'm envious of the life you've lived so far because I want to have adventures. I want to be able to do things that are considered taboo and not anything that's like uncomfortable and, you know, puts me in a weird sexual position. But I mean, you know, going to Barcelona and living there for a while and working some odd job, like these are the types of things that Americans dream about doing, but they never actually carry it out because you're expected to follow a certain schedule. Right. So that's kind of the thing that I'm uh, conflicted about because because now that I'm 27 and people keep telling me like you're a baby, you're a baby, don't worry about it, don't worry. But no, I'm not a baby. Like before I know it, I'm going to be 35 and if I do the things that I genuinely want to do with my life, then I'm not going to get married anytime soon or have kids anytime soon. And I guess my fear is that I'm going to continue doing what I want and then all of a sudden I'm going to realize holy shit, it's too freaking late. Yeah. And a lot of times women say that you don't have to choose between, you know, the conventional lifestyle of raising kids and a career, but you definitely do have to choose because it's ridiculous to claim that having a family in your late 20s won't hinder your career possibilities. Yeah. And that kind of sucks. So It does. You're right. Yeah. You're right. And, and that's another aspect of things that's fundamentally different between men and women. That they, men don't have to worry have about that. If you want to have a kid, that. you really need to like think about timing and yeah. It's, yeah, for it's men, I mean, having kids in their forties—that's not a big deal at all. For yeah. women, having kids in your forties—that's risky business. You don't want to play that game. So, that's yeah. what the reality is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you there. I got no advice for you. I know. I wasn't even asking for advice. I I believe you when you say that you don't like giving it. So I'll tell you an interesting uh, coda to that story about uh-huh. the the couple in New York. Uh, that guy, uh, his job. This was before um, Photoshop and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. In fact, the job I was working at that point, one of my tasks was I had to back up the computer. Mm-hmm. The computer was the size of a refrigerator, mm-hmm. and the disks were like large pizzas. Oh my god! And they're probably like four megabytes or something. That's how old I am. Um, but uh, anyway, this guy was a he did airbrushing, uh-huh. which was before Photoshop. It was like you actually had a thing that like shot air on the wet, you know, the chemicals on the the. Uh, photograph and um his biggest clients were playboy and penthouse yeah of course and so he told me things that man like some of those centerfolds Mm -hmm. are three different women's bodies fused together what yeah wow so you had one woman's legs and ass another woman's torso and breasts and another woman's face so that woman doesn't, doesn't even exist. exist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, and there's a big that's a metaphor for all sorts of things, right? You know, the creation of desire and unfulfillable desires mm-hmm. and you know unmeetable goals and all this kind of stuff. But then uh, another one was that um, 
the, one of the things they did was they had um, ace bandages that they would wrap around the woman's neck, down under her breasts, and back up. So these women with really large breasts that, like, sit up high, they're being held up with an ace bandage, yeah. and his job was to go in and remove the bandage. So it looks like they're just gravity-defying breasts. That is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know. That's what the reality is. And yeah. then women are expected to look that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So It's it, ridiculous. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the reality. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's a fucked up society. I, I, I don't know if I've told you. The book I'm working on now is called Civilized to Death. And it's uh-huh. like an, uh, an indictment of Western society. Uh, yeah. The, the trick is to... To make a really depressing book fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the trick, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I still need to sit down and read your book. But it's so funny because um, there are so many people, uh, like one of my my friends asked me about the point the other day. And I was like, yeah, we had a really great panel. You know, this guy named Chris Ryan was on the show. And, you know, he's a regular on Rogan. And my friend is like a huge Rogan fan. He's like, oh, I know Chris Ryan. He wrote Sex at Dawn. He, like, got so excited about it. <laughs> um, and I'm like, dude, I need to sit my ass down and read that book cover to cover. Because yeah. everyone who reads it just freaks out about how great it is. Um, and, yeah. and it's fascinating to, to learn about how society has changed and how, you know, monogamy is yeah. not... Not something that we're um, supposed to follow through with. It's it's a societal expectation. So yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it, yeah. As I said, it's not an indictment. It's not. It's yeah, not giving yeah. any advice. But it, it 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 does show that you know this is how we are naturally. So then you know figure it out. And here are here is how some other societies work it yeah. out. You know, because yeah. there is you are squaring a circle in some ways. You know, you want variety and and passion but you also want stability and course, intimacy and course. like well how the hell do you do that those, those it's like wanting to be wet and dry i mean can you is there a way to do that i mean i think people find ways to do it um but another reason that that i don't answer the question about our marriage mm-hmm. is that things constantly change in a relationship yep right relationships are organic and uh so if i were to answer a question like that Five years from now, it would be a different answer. So there is no answer, you know, and that's that's why I think we have to shy away from providing, you know, five steps to a perfect marriage or this right. or that. I hate it's, those types of articles and new. books. They're terrible. Yeah. I've got an idea for a book called Zero Steps to Optimal Health. That sounds good. Yeah. I'd yeah. read that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be really cheap. Really cheap. Um, I see you looking at your phone. Do you have to run? I do have, have to, to run. run. Oh, okay. I'm exa- I feel like I'm no longer useful on your podcast. Oh, really? I I'm think so you're exhausted. Scintillating. You okay? Good. I'm, I'm happy you like me because <laughs> today's been a really, really long day. So I do the point, and then I yeah. do the main show, and then you know there are a bunch of other like emails and things I have to answer in between all of that. So Wednesdays are insane. But um, I always wanted to come on your podcast. Um, not Malcolm told me about it, and I was like, I got to do it at some Malcolm's point. Malcolm's great. Yeah. And after doing Rogan's podcast, I realized that I love podcasts. You just sit around and you talk. Who yeah. the hell doesn't love that? The only danger is you forget there's an audience. Oh, that I know. I forget that there's an audience on the largest online news show in the world. <laughs> like, sometimes I say things, and, you know, I'll have yeah. family members here, and they're like, what the fuck were you thinking? Yeah. Why would you share that information yeah. about yourself? It's true. It, it's amazing. I mean, the first time I was on The Point, yeah. I was nervous. Really? Yeah. Like, you know, because it, it was early days still yeah. for me. and Because, yeah. you know, until 2010, when the book came out, I 
like no media at all. I was some guy teaching English in Barcelona. I was, mm-hmm. you know, and then suddenly I'm doing all this stuff. And, and I remember the point the first time I came in and it's like, oh, it's like TV sort of, you know, it's a TV studio. There are cameras and lights and all this stuff. But you get used to it so quickly. Yeah, and you get comfortable. Especially if you're here. You're working yeah. here. This yeah. is your office. This is my home. Yeah. 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 It's Well, it's like you're doing media boot camp. You're just like busting your ass, you know, constantly. So not that you would want to leave the Young Turks, but, it, you know, maybe there's a move into. Yeah, it would know. have to be a pretty sweet deal for me to leave yeah. because I feel like I'm doing something that I absolutely love. It's almost perfect what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, but that that and sushi, my career in sushi, those <laughs> the two great pleasures of my life right now. Oh, so that's good. I really enjoy what I do. That's good. Yeah. Well, I didn't even know you were single. I, th- I thought you were in a I relationship. I was in a really long term and- relationship uh-huh. with a really great guy and like this entire conversation is making me reconsider everything <laughs> no really really great guy um yeah. we're good friends yeah. um but i had never been single in my adult life we had been together for seven years that is such an issue for so many women yeah and so, so i felt yeah. like it was necessary for me to kind of discover myself right and i don't know i'm in the process of doing that right now and it's a it's a ride <laughs> well listen you're tired you got to go home and sleep uh, thank, thank you for you. having me on yeah. this was so much fun yeah let's do it again in a few months when absolutely you, when your ride is a little further along yeah i'll, I'll have more <laughs> stories for you guys definitely thank you all right thanks all right. said baby what's the big deal feel what you want to feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.